And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. You have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. Let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. What need is there? Let me find favour in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Hello, welcome to you. If you are watching this from our Shoreham site, Oasis site, Hove site, or at the Clarendon Centre, or watching this online, thank you for joining us. And hey, we've made it. We've come to the end of our series, which we've called The Promise Endures. We've been in it for about 13 weeks, I think, and uh, we are coming into land. This is the last uh, message in this preaching series. Really hope that you have uh, enjoyed it. I don't know if you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I absolutely love the book of Genesis, which is the book that we've been looking at, and specifically the, some key foundational characters in the Bible uh, Isaac and Jacob, and we've been tracing their story through. So we, we have finished it. We've, this is the last time you will see this backdrop. If anyone you know wants these for their front room, you've got some vultures uh, there, just, just get in touch with us. We'd love to uh, send that on uh, to you. But uh, the, the part that we've uh, just heard uh, from chapter 33 of Genesis kind of nicely brings things into land because with Jacob's story, he reaches a significant moment and we've just heard it there in verse 18. It said, Jacob came safely to the land of Canaan. 
So as I've said, this series that we've been looking at, we've been tracing through this book of Genesis, specifically looking at the lives of two people, Isaac and uh, Jacob and their, and their family. And even though we're bringing the series into land today, it's not actually the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis continues and actually it's not even the end of Jacob's life. Jacob still features in the next few chapters. And the rest of Genesis is primarily to do with one of Jacob's 12 sons called Joseph. You see, if you're with us last week, Jacob is renamed Israel. And that is where the, the, the place Israel now, that's where the, the name comes from. And Joseph's story is in the, se- in the last section of the book of Genesis. And the circumstances of his life set up the, the next chapter, and sorry, the next book of the Bible, which is the book of Exodus. And the whole story of Exodus is about this family, this huge group of people going back to the land of Canaan, which is known then as the promised land. So these sort of features of coming into Canaan, Jacob being named Israel kind of sets up the next bit of the Bible's story. If you want to um, go into Exodus, if you weren't with us back in autumn 2020, uh, we did a series that sort of traced through the Exodus story and we called it Story and you can find that on our YouTube channel and or if you've missed any of the the Promise Endure series, you'll also find that on our YouTube channel uh, as well. We have come though to an appropriate place to stop with this series because what we find is as well as Jacob coming to the land of Canaan again, we also end with Jacob worshiping God. And you might think for someone in the Bible, that's not that unusual. Why is that significant? Well, if you have been with us for this series, you'll recognize and know that through Jacob's life, actually worshiping God, Trusting God, journeying with God is not actually something that has characterized much of his life. And so this moment of setting up this altar and worshiping God is actually quite significant. When we consider Jacob's story, he got a lot of things wrong. He did some things Right, but here we find him in a good place, recognizing God's hand on his life and worshiping him. But as we sort of draw uh, things to a close here in this series, it's worth considering, uh, sort of reflecting on Jacob's life and what has characterized it. And I think it, you know, we called the series The Promise Endures because that really is what it's all about. Jacob didn't get everything right in his life, but it was God's goodness. And it was God's promise and God's persistent blessing towards Jacob and his family that had sustained him. You know, we've been through a season, a time, the last couple of years through this pandemic. And and I think for many people, it has been a time of reflection, (laughs) reflecting on where where my life is going or what I'm doing in life. Maybe that's been the case for you. Maybe there's certain things that have changed. You've changed some things about your life. Maybe you've changed jobs or changed career or just the way you do family life or work or, or that sort of thing. Many, I know many people that has been their experience when you know, the circumstance cause us to pause. We kind of reflect on 
where our life is going and maybe make some changes. It, it seems that it has also been a time that many people have uh, reflected and, and uh, asked some of the bigger questions in life. All the way through the pandemic, we've been doing church services in all the ways that we can and doing Alpha courses as well. Alpha is uh, a context where people sort of get to grips with the foundations of the Christian faith and uh, I can't really remember a time like it that we have seen so many people interested to ask questions about the Christian faith, coming to faith, putting their faith uh, in Jesus and choosing to follow him and seeing his powerful work in our life. That has been the testimony of many people, many people uh, watching this now, perhaps that's been the case for you. When we consider the end of Jacob's life as his story draws to a close here, I wonder what his reflection might be on his life. <laughs> I think he would have said that he got one or two things right. Probably, if he's honest, got a lot of things wrong. But God was faithful to him. The fact that he's worshipping in this moment suggests he has finally recognised that. And I would say that well, that is, that's my testimony as well. I would like to think that I'll get to the end of my life and say something very similar. Okay, I'm, there might be some things I got right in life. I know I've got things wrong in life as well. But most of all, God has been faithful to me. God has been good to me. His grace has seen me through. And I think that is the testimony of any and every Christian. It's not about what we achieve in life. It's not about all the things we get right or if we get more things right than things wrong. Actually, the testimony of a Christian is that, no, God has been good to me. His promise has endured. He has been faithful. And that has what has sustained us and got us to where we have gone. And when you know that in your life, when you've experienced that, the unrelenting faithfulness of God and his goodness again and again and again. It's actually quite hard and it's even scary to imagine life without that. You know, the thought of coming to the end of your life without knowing the grace of God, surely you must be haunted by maybe mistakes that you've made or questions. Have I done well? Have I been good enough? Have I achieved what I wanted to achieve? I think all of us, whether we're a Christian or not, we, we have those questions that come to us, maybe at the end of life, maybe at other moments as well, when we reflect on where our lives have taken us and what we have done with the time that we have on earth. You see, the, the atheists would say, well, it doesn't really matter. The atheists would say, well, our lives are not very significant in the grand scheme of things. They're actually just accidents. We're just here and we're just here to make the best of it. But I, I want to suggest that when we have moments of reflection, I imagine particularly as you get to the end of your life as Jacob is getting here and reflecting, looking back on what has happened, that doesn't really, that attitude doesn't really ring true because we want to think of our lives in a sense of there, there was some meaning to them. There was some purpose. And therefore, these questions come to mind of, have I lived a purposeful life? Have I brought meaning? Have I lived with a sense of meaning? What have I done for others? What have I done for myself? There's, there's something of a, a preciousness 
of life, that, even a sacredness to life that we recognize when we truly reflect on it. And in the last few weeks, we have seen on, on news feeds, for example, the, the funeral of uh, Dame Deborah James, who, who's many people are celebrating her life cut short by cancer, but did so much to raise awareness about cancer and raise huge amounts of money uh, for uh, cancer research and things like that. And it's right to celebrate that, that there's a life, and even though it was tragic in many ways, it's full of meaning and full of purpose. Those types of reflections come to us when we consider life. And that's really what this series has been about. And that's why we have the life and death aspect of the, the pictures that you see here. It's actually weaved through that God has been faithful. And that's a tremendous comfort. It's a tremendous sense of stability when we recognize God's hand on our lives. And it just gives peace to those of us who are Christians in a way that we would just not know without this wonderful truth that the God of the Bible is a God who is faithful to his people. So in the passage that we've just heard from chapter 33, we have Jacob coming into the land of Canaan. We have him in a place of worship, even as he reflects on his life. And we also have something of a reconciliation here. Well, it is a reconciliation with his brother Esau. I don't know if you've ever, uh, if you have had to reconcile with a sibling or a family member. Well, this is quite a significant uh, one and we'll go on to explain exactly why. But we have a sense of things coming to a close, thing, the, the circle being tied together. Jacob's been away and he's come back. And not only has he come back geographically, he's come back to be and is united with family as well. And so in this moment, I want us to reflect on it, I think, what has changed? What has changed? How much has Jacob changed? How much has Esau changed? Which we'll see is quite a lot. And what about God? Does God change or does God not change? And consider those three things. Firstly, Jacob then. In what ways has Jacob changed? Well, as we've already said, Jacob as we've looked at his life over these last couple of months or so, we recognize Jacob has not been a great guy. He's got a lot of things wrong. And, and not just in terms of his behavior, but the fact that he has struggled. Struggled to trust God, struggled to follow God, struggled to really know that God was there for him. In many ways, Jacob's life reminds us that the Christian life is not about getting everything right. Let me say that again. The Christian life is not about getting everything right. Now, some of you have been Christians for many years, and you know that's true on one level, but on another level, you act as if it is true. And that you think that God's going to love you more because you're better behaved. Or you have some a desire just to get things right and to do things well and to be impressive and to perform. And Jacob's life so shows us that actually he doesn't get things right. But God is at work in his life. And the relationship is by grace. And that's the way that God relates to him. And so it's just a very simple point, but just a reminder to those of you who are watching who are Christians it's not about getting everything right. Don't make that your aim because you'll actually miss Jesus. You'll be so concerned with getting things right, you'll actually miss the grace of Jesus. 
And that's a reminder or, or an introduction to the idea to those of you who are not Christians as well watching this. Don't think that's what it's about. Oh, to become a Christian, I have to get my life sorted and get things together. If you've been with us for the series, you would know, Jacob, he doesn't get things right himself, but God still works in that. That's not defining of his life. And we see that in this passage. It's obvious that Jacob is still afraid of Esau. He's had many encounters with God Many miraculous things that have happened. We saw that in last week, how Jacob struggled with God and encountered and said, I've seen God face to face. And yet the next, very next chapter, he's still worried. This his brother Esau, who hates him, he's coming to kill him, he thinks. And he's worried about, he's not trusting God that God is going to be with him. He's worried about the outcome of this. And we see that in the way he tries to appease Jacob. We've learned in a previous week how he sort of sent on presents. And in this passage we saw there in verse 3, he sort of sends his family on ahead and then just makes this elaborate sort of bowing down and showing reverence. And even when Esau turns up, he's sort of calling him Lord and saying, referring to himself as your servant. And he it's not, it's not, he's not in a posture of faith. It's not, it's not great, to be honest. And also we see there towards the end of the passage that we read out, end of chapter 33, seems that Jacob tries to lie and deceive Esau. Jacob's up to his old tricks again. Esau's like, come on, let's go to Seir together. And Jacob's like, all right, yeah, that's great. Okay, you, you go on ahead, you go on ahead. I'll follow after. <laughs> and he, he goes the other direction. It's not great. Again, it's not good behavior by Jacob. It's not something to emulate. But we take from it, we are reminded from it, that to journey with God means that sin doesn't define your life. Following Jesus, the Christian walk, is not about just not sinning. It's actually about coming to Jesus again and again despite our sin. You know, as a as pastor, sometimes people come up to me and they're worried about their faith or struggles with faith and worried about, uh, sometimes some people have said to me, well, you know, I, I have this area of my life and I, I find I'm still sitting, I'm still doing things wrong in it and not, not much seems to change. And so does that mean that I'm not a Christian? Because if I really was a Christian, I would be able to do this area of life better and not fall into sin in the way that I am. And that's a, that's a genuine question. And I tend to say two things when asked with that question. I say, firstly, be encouraged that you're worried about your sin. Because the Bible says that without God's intervention in our life, none of us are really concerned about how our sin seems to God. <laughs> You know, that doesn't mean to say that no one who is not a Christian, uh, they don't sort of aren't aware of bad things or have a conscience. No, everyone, everyone does. But in the sense of worrying about how that makes us stand before God, that is actually only comes by the Holy Spirit that we recognize a sense of conviction. Wow, I've done something wrong before God. And so actually, even though it can be a little bit unsettling in a moment, it's actually evidence that, God is at work in our life. But also, the second thing I say is that, well, when you feel like that, 
What do you do with that? Do you bring it to Jesus? Do you come back to him? You see, a Christian does not live in perfection, but lives in forgiveness. And that is the way that we are to walk. The famous reformer Martin Luther said, when the Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that we just be miserable and just are really sad about how wretched we are? No, no, he doesn't actually. Because repentance and faith are sort of two sides of the same coin. And actually when we repent, it's not about feeling bad about ourselves and walking around in misery. Repentance, what is it? Well, it's acknowledging the wrong that we have done. It's saying sorry for it. But it's also receiving forgiveness. And because Jesus has come and died on the cross for our sin, we can, through faith in him, receive forgiveness for that sin. And then fourthly, I'd say repentance is also asking for God's help to change. Not saying to God, I'm going to do things ten times better going forward. It's saying, God, I've done wrong. I'm sorry that I've done wrong. I receive your forgiveness through Christ. And I also ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to change. And when we do that, we're living in the gospel. It's not about getting everything right. It's about recognizing our sin and receiving forgiveness and walking in the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And I really think this is where Jacob gets to. Because even though Jacob's life, he's not, he's not changed completely. He's not become this super person that doesn't get anything wrong anymore. He still stumbles. He still struggles here. But he does worship. He does recognize he needs to come to God. He takes his eyes off himself and he fixes them on God. That's where we leave Jacob here. And friends, that's not a bad place to be. In fact, that's the best place to be. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I want to embrace this gospel and this goodness of God and I worship him. My eyes are not on myself, actually. They're on him. That's where we leave Jacob. Does, has, has Jacob changed? Well, a bit if in terms of his performance, but a lot in terms of his heart attitude towards God. What about Esau? Has Esau changed? Absolutely Esau has changed. Now, let me remind you, because we've just heard in chapter 33 how Esau reconciles with Jacob. But let me take you back to chapter 27, verse 41. It says this, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And Jacob has to run away. He flees. That's, we looked at that several weeks ago. He has to run away from Canaan in order to get away from Esau because he knows Esau is out to kill him. And so with Jacob coming back to Canaan now and Esau coming to meet him, understandably Jacob's afraid and wondering what's going to happen. Is Esau still going to hate him and kill him? What does it say in verse 4? Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now, if Jacob was anything like me, you know, just over the top 
outpouring of emotion would make him extremely uncomfortable. Add to that the fact that Jacob thinks that Esau is out to kill him. It's a bit of a weird moment, this. You know, Esau's crying, weeping over him. And Jacob's like, oh, you're crying. I get, should I cry as, as well? You're hugging me. Do you have a knife here? This is the very weird. This is very strange. And actually, Jacob shows in his actions, he doesn't, doesn't really trust <laughs> this reconciliation. He's reluctant to go with Esau. Esau says, hey, come, let's, let's journey together. Let's go to this place called Seir. And, and Jacob's like, oh, yeah, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do that. <laughs> and then he goes in the other direction. And you think... Well, how has this happened? How, is, how has Esau gone from hating his brother and wanting to kill him to embracing him and weeping over him and saying it's so wonderful to be back together? Because the scripture doesn't give us any explanation and Jacob doesn't seem to be aware of any explanation either. It seems just crazy. And we might conclude, well, obviously the old adage is true. Time's a healer. You know, it's been several years since he has seen Esau. So we just must conclude, well, he's obviously just got over it. <laughs> he's obviously just moved past that and that, all that hatred has just melted away. Is that it? Time's a healer? I don't think it is. I think what this shows us is that the promise endures, that God does miraculous things, that when God is in our story, he just changes circumstances supernaturally sometimes. And he does it for our blessing and to demonstrate his faithfulness and goodness. You see, when God is in the story, as he is in this story that we've been looking at through our series the impossible is not just possible. The impossible actually is to be expected. When you get to know what God is like, you see something radical like Esau just goes through this fundamental 180 degree switch and you just hope, God did it. Just God did it. God did it. It wasn't about what Jacob did. God went before him and changed things around. We can expect the impossible when God is in our story as well. You know, when I speak to people and maybe when I get to know people for the first time and explain that I'm a pastor, sometimes I wonder uh, what is going through their mind and what they think about the fact that, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. And uh, I think probably perhaps for many people think, oh, what a, what a restricted life that you must live. Because that's the idea that many people in our society have, that to be a Christian is to... Um, to, to, to block ourselves off from things. You know, to anyone else who's not a Christian, not religious, have pushed that away because we want to be free that life without any sense of religiosity is freedom and it's limitless. We live without limits. We can do whatever we want to do. And it, that's ironic to me because actually that's, that's not true at all. If you don't live with God, you don't live with limits. And so you do, you do live with limits because you're limited by yourself. And many people hit those moments in life very often when you realize, oh, no, I, I can't do whatever I want and go wherever I want because actually I get in the way sometimes. I reach the end of my ability. I actually can't control circumstance in the way I like to think that I can. Sometimes my mistakes, my failures... Oh, that's the limits. 
I can't do and be whatever I want to be because sometimes I'm not good enough. And I think that's what many people experience. We live with this illusion that life is unlimited. We're free to do whatever we... No, we're, we're limited by the limits of ourselves. But the Christian life is actually the exact opposite of that. It's, it seems to others as being restrictive. Oh, you're not in whatever way that looks like. But actually, you live with God. And when you live with God, you realize there are, life isn't limited because God does miraculous. God does stuff that we can't do. You know, think, think about this. I know this is weird because I'm speaking into the, the, the camera here. But in a moment, I want to put your hand, put you to put your hand up. Because I know many of you have experienced this. If not, the vast, vast majority of you have experienced this. If I was to ask you to consider your life, has, has anything ever happened in your life that you knew it wasn't to do with, with you? <laughs> it wasn't to do with what you could achieve or circumstance that you could bring about. That God did something that was beyond what you could do. Maybe it's because you, you've experienced healing. Maybe unexpected finance came to you, provision in some way. Maybe you've had a job situation that just in the right moment, at the right time, came together, a door opened. It was nothing to do with you engineering the situation. It was outside of your control. You've had a moment of sudden breakthrough or change. Or maybe you've had a relationship that's just suddenly turned around and restored in a way that you thought that could never have happened just on its own. Basically, have you ever had anything in your life where the explanation is not you, you just say, that had to be God. Now, literally, I'm asking you, put your hand up right now if that's any of those categories ever happened to you. God has just done something that's beyond what you could do. <laughs> now, I know, <laughs> I'm confident that the vast majority of hands in the room are up right now. Because that's what it's like living with God. God just does stuff beyond what we can do. It's not, when we're living with God, the limits are off. Now, can we generate that miracle? God does whatever we want exactly when we, no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> but God goes before us. And just like in Jacob's life, just God just turned Esau around <laughs> and just turned him from someone who hated him to someone who wants to bless him. Just God did it. And we have experienced that. It's a miracle, but God does miracles. That's who he's like. That's what he does that's it right there and if you're not you've probably put your hand down by now but if you're not a christian in the room i'm just like consider those hands consider if you're not a christian these christians they've experienced the work of god ask them about it what did god do for you it's a limitless life when we live with god and we recognize that he's in our story it's a wonderful place to be so yes, Esau's transformation is a miracle. But you know what? That's, what? that's what God does. That's what God does. Finally then, before we finish, I want to consider God. We've considered Jacob and the extent to which he changed. Esau miraculously changes. But that points us to God. Does God change? Well, the Bible says that God doesn't change. And we see that demonstrated in this story from the Bible as well. That God is the same. And that is tremendous good news that God is always faithful, that God is always good, that God is always full of grace. And we see that in the Old Testament of the Bible and the New Testament as well. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Joel mentioned when he was uh, doing some preaching that 
when Jesus would have told the story of the prodigal son, the original hearers would have identified that with the story of Jacob that we have been looking at because there's so many parables, uh, sorry, uh, parallels to it. Jacob was, we, uh, we, we've seen over uh, the, the, the series that we've been looking at his life. What happened to him? Well, he was the younger son who, who stole the blessing, stole, took the inheritance from his father and had to run off to a foreign land. And in that foreign land, he's led by his desire. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But he gets himself into trouble and he's deceived and he's tricked. And in the midst of that, he comes to a point of realization, I need to go home. This is not where I'm supposed to be. I need... And so he comes back and journeys back. And we've seen that over the last couple of weeks. And even in this moment, we have him coming back to his land but also that sense of he's thinking, right, my relative, my brother in this case, is coming towards me and I need to appease him. I need to pay him off. He's not just going to accept me. I'm going to send him a gift. And he tries to work, sort of negotiate his way back into relationship. And all those parts of the story are exactly like the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. Jesus said there was... Two brothers, and the younger brother said to his father, give me my inheritance now. And the father did, and the son went off, and he went off to a foreign land and spent it all on wild living. And he ended up with nothing, and then he spent it all, and he had to live life, and he was feeding pigs, and he was jealous of the pigs, of the food that they have. And in that moment of humility, realized, wait a minute, I need to go back. I need to go back to my father. And he travels back to his father. And in that sense of going back, he said, well, I could work as a hired hand. And that's, that's what Jesus says there. Let's pick up the story there. Luke 15, verse 18 to 20 says, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And what does the father do? It says, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Why did Jesus told, tell this story? He told this story to explain to people what God the father is like that we as sons and daughters will run away and do our own thing and think we don't need the Father. But if we were to turn back, we would see that the Father comes running. And that's exactly what happens in Jacob's story as well. It's Esau in this is representing God the Father. Esau comes running. Jacob, does not deserve, Jacob has done everything against Esau. He's robbed him. And yet Esau comes with grace and runs and embraces and kisses him. And all that is wrong between them is made right. And Jesus is saying, that is what God the Father has done. He runs. To, did you know that the God of the Bible is a God that runs to you? He's a God that embraces you. He's a God that wraps his arms around you and kisses you. 
Who is God? He is the Father who loves, who loves to find lost sons and daughters. Why? Because he's full of grace. He's full of grace. Listen to what the father, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found and they began to celebrate. And you know what? Jesus tells the story because we don't get this. We don't think about this when we think about God. And in many ways, we represent the older brother in the, in the parable of the... the uh, the prodigal son, because the older brother says, you, Father, you can't act like that. That is, he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve to be treated this way. How can you take a son who has abandoned you and has stolen from you and you're blessing him? You're kissing him? You're embracing him? You're killing the fattened calf and having a celebration for him? For that one, this is too scandalous. And we think that of God sometimes. We think, oh no, when it comes to God, I've got, to, I've got to clean up my act. I've got to get things together because God is a fair God. Now God is a fair God, but God's grace defines, defies a sense of logic, defies fairness. It goes, it's over the top. And when this, the son says to the father this, you can't act like this. What does the father say? It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's fine. He's saying, you don't get it. You don't get what I'm like. You don't get how I see things. It's not about how messed up he is. It's not about how far he's gone. It's about the fact that I love him. It's about the fact that I never stop loving him. And the son or the daughter who was lost, they only have to turn. That's what he does. He's in the pigsty. And he says, maybe I could come back. You see, we take one step back to God and he comes running. He comes running. Aren't you glad the God of the Bible does not change? This is the way he treated Jacob. Jacob messed it up time and time again. And God never left. The father never turned away from him. The father ran to him, showed grace to him again and again and again. And this is the God that Jesus wants us to know. He's the one who pursues us. That's why Jesus came. To show us we don't earn our way to God. He's come to us. He loves us. He's forgiven us. And if we just turn to him, he'll come running, embrace us, forgive us, restore us. It's not about us earning our way up. It's about him running down to us. It's what God is like. That's the gospel. And he's always the same. Whatever you've done, however far you've strayed away, doesn't affect he's the same God he's going to come running to you don't you want to turn to him again today don't you want to receive that embrace you can because it's all of grace and it's found in Christ let me pray for us right now father I want to pray that by your holy spirit now 
we would each feel you running to us and embracing us. Lord, give those who have lacked faith up to now the faith to cry out to you, say, Jesus, I repent and I turn to you. And in that moment, Holy Spirit, come running and bring the love of the Father to them in this moment, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.